God, you have our attention now. You have our attention. So teach us with your word. Let it sweep over us and sink in today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We live in a world governed by an axiom that says, maximize it all, upsize it now. We want more, we want bigger, we want faster. And our language betrays us because we have rush hour and fast food. We have rapid transit, don't we? We have the time crunch. We have the expressway and overnight delivery. We use Federal Express, Sprint, Quicken. We have day runners. We diet on slim fast to fit into Speedos. We do diet on slim fast. We're told we have more choices now than ever before. 300 kinds of toothpaste you could choose from the store. Over 4,500 children book titles this year you could purchase. And 1,500 satellite dish movies, satellite new, new kind of uh, digital technology, about 1,500 movies a month piped into your home or coming soon to your little handheld device. 1,500 movies to choose from, and I'm told when you consider all the possible options, you have 25 million versions of the automobile you could buy. And this is progress. Who knew we needed this? Who knew? Because when we, I was a child, we ate an Oreo cookie and we thought it was pretty good. We didn't know we needed double-stuffed, chocolate-filled, mint-filled, chocolate-dipped, Oreo minis, uh-ohs and low-fat for the slim-fast folks. <laughs> Who said this was progress? We're told we have information fatigue. We know more in the last 30 years than we've learned in the previous 500 years before that. We have information fatigue, and we have overload, and this great digital divide, and we're sleep-deprived, they tell us. In 1850, the average American got nine and a half hours of sleep per night. That sounds like heaven to some of you. I hear you murmuring. 1850, 1950, the average American was sleeping eight hours a night. That's still pretty good. Today, we sleep less than seven hours per night. We're sleep fatigued. They tell us that the light bulb invaded night and sleep never recovered from this anxiety. Isn't that good? We have an overdeveloped work ethic. In fact, society rewards workaholics. It's almost a modern religion. When you hear people boast about their busy schedules, it's as if we can somehow correlate our lack of time with our importance as a person. An overdeveloped work ethic. It wasn't until 1956 that the word stress entered the American vernacular as anything interesting to someone other than a structural engineer. If you can believe it, stress was a word for steel bridges until we got to 1956. And then we're into the 60s and the Beatles couldn't handle it in America. They went to India to learn yoga. Pretty soon it was jazzercise because we learned of the relationship between cardiovascular health and stress in our lives. After yoga, we learned about type A and B personalities and some need Xanax and Protac. No, Xanax and Prozac. And by the 70s, by the 70s, we have 
these new relaxation tapes people are listening to. By 1983, stress takes the cover of Time magazine. By 1985, Calgon is taking us away. And by the 1990s, the word going postal <laughs> is common phrase in the workplace. So that the government had to install a new division in the U.S. Department of Labor to investigate workplace stress. This is the 1990s. So yes, we go to Glen Ivy, we do massage, we meditate, we sniff designer oxygen. Some people sniff other things. <laughs> All to escape our anxiety. And if you don't have it, your pet probably does. For $100 a month, you can put your pet on anti-anxiety medication. And all of this has been dubbed the commerce of coping. The commerce of coping. All of it seems to be intertwined with an economic system that has a debit-credit mentality. Someone has discussed and described the average American as a person who drives a, a bank-financed car over a bond-financed highway to purchase credit card gas so they can go to the department store and open an account to fill their savings and loan-financed home with installment-purchased furniture. No wonder we have heart palpitation and our anxiety goes up and our face breaks out and we get, well, cranky. We're a little unbearable. Have you heard the story of the man who comes home from work to greet his spouse in the driveway? He's just been yelled at at the office, so he comes home, he yells at his spouse in the driveway. She goes inside and yells at the boy. The boy yells at his little sister. The little sister picks up the cat and tosses it across the living room and the cat rips the head off the baby doll. And someone suggested, wouldn't it have been smarter for the father to rip the head off the baby doll <laughs> and go to his room? <laughs> it makes us cranky, quite honestly. The way in our world is to maximize and upsize it all. But my friends, the way of the word is very different. We have been in Romans chapter 12, the month of January, and we're going to stay there a few more weeks. The Apostle Paul has let us know, he makes a plea here, because of what God has done for you, your life will be radically transformed and changed. Things will be different. Reading in chapter 12, these three verses again this morning, which you'll probably memorize soon. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. By the grace given me, I give to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given with you. The first week of the series, I suggested we read verse 1 this way, in very literal fashion, present your bodies living, a sacrifice, holy, 
and acceptable to God. Put yourself and all that you have and all that you are and all that is an extension of you on the altar because by doing so, you recognize that who you are and what you have is because of who God is and what he has. And life will be very different. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in this passage. And he says, by the way, this is a plea only three times in, the letters to the Roman, in this letter to the Roman citizens, Christians, Jews, Gentiles. Three times he makes a plea. In chapter 15, he pleads with them, pray for me. In chapter 16, he makes a plea, be careful of those among you who might cause dissension. And we're going to talk about that verse in three weeks. It'll be a good Sabbath. Don't miss it. And then this plea. In chapter 12, put your body on the altar. It is the most comprehensive and the least defined of all of the pleas in Romans. The applications are numerous. Today we're applying it to the 24-7, week in, week out, the calendar, our time, this thing you and I do. And is it possible that as busy believers, we are bold enough to put this on the altar and make it available to God to transform. Is it possible? If you were here for the sermon series in September, you remembered the phrase we used, unfinished Christians. When we said we're a work in process, we have progress to make, a place we're headed. We're not there yet, and probably when we get to this topic, we recognize any more than other, more than all the others, how unfinished we are. Someone drew this little picture during the September sermon series left it on a pew. It's pretty good, isn't it? We're working on the other half today. An unfinished Christian in a crazy world, here are some words from Jesus that make a difference. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. I invite you to turn there. There's a Bible in the pew if you didn't have one of your own this morning. Pastor Dan touched down briefly on this verse last week so gently as he stood here in his bow tie. <laughs> but we're going to spend a little more time on the passage today. This is Jesus talking somewhere in the region of Galilee, words that are familiar to you. Verse 28, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It sounds soothing to those of us who live in the 21st century, even to those of us Adventist Christians who know about a cycle of time and rest in the Sabbath. These words are inviting, but do they work in a maximized, upsized world like ours? They might have worked in Galilee, but hey, this is Los Angeles, sweetheart. Does this make it here? If you move your finger up to verse 7 in chapter 11, the story really takes its shape right there where Jesus is wandering around the region in Galilee. Keep in mind that this, the land has been good to the people there. They are rich in resources. You can think of Galilee like the Napa Valley, like the central coastal region of California, abundant with resources. They have the lake, so there's fish, there are crops, there are olive trees, and the peasants work. Here's the problem. 
The more they work, the less they have. And the Roman Empire is seeing cracks and fatigue because of this, because the peasants, the workers, are unhappy. They realize that it doesn't matter if they work more and longer and faster and harder, and if they produce in abundance, all of the resources of Galilee go to feed Rome. And the peasants are they're melting under the load of all of that. It's said that during this time in history is the highest time of taxation, even higher than California under the rule of Gray Davis. You remember those conversations a few years ago? Herod was worse. So they sent their money to Rome, and what the tax collectors didn't take, the priests took, and what the priests didn't take, the scribes took, and you get the picture, there's very little left for these peasant workers working long hours, dusty, dirty, exhausted after the day, with very little to show for it. Jesus is standing in a field, and he begins cursing the cities and the leaders, important cities, prestigious leaders, religious leaders, people who make decisions. Jesus is cursing them because he's been to those cities. He's been in front of those leaders. He offered them something. He tried to exchange their way of life for something he called a kingdom of God. And they rejected that. So he's cursing these leaders and these cities. And all the way down in about verse 25, Jesus begins a, a prayer. He turns his head up to heaven and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, that would be the city leaders, and you've given them to the babes. That would be the childlike, the disciples, the peasants. Father, this is your gracious will, Jesus says, verse 26, 27. All things have been delivered to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and whomever the Son chooses to reveal the Father. And the people are walking by, and this is a pretty big deal, what they've just heard. Who is this guy standing out in the field like Father, like Son, only three times in the Gospel of Matthew? Does Jesus claim to be the Son of God? So if you're a weary, dusty worker who's just put down your farm tools from the day, you've just left the fishing boat or walked out of the portico, you wonder who is this crazy guy in the field and under what authority is he inviting us to come? And that's when Jesus moves into those verses we know so well. Come to me, all you who labor. In the original language, I like the way it reads, come to me, all you laboring ones, and I will rest you. It isn't even as if rest is a gift God would hand you. It is it's, it's a process God would work inside of you and I. Come to me and I will do a work of rest in you, not because you worked hard today, not because your product was so much higher than yesterday, not because you're so deserving. Come to me and let me do this work of rest in you because I can, because I want to. These are the words of Jesus, and he continues on with a few other things. Come to me and learn from me and and. And the people must be thinking, what in the world? Too good to be true. And in this region, they've seen it all as mystery religions have swept through. People promising all sorts of things. My father is one of those people, every time he gets a sweepstake notice in the mail, he believes it. Now, things are a little different in this stage of his life. He has dementia. 
And um, when you see him here and you talk with him, he's, you know, he's not the same person that we knew, but for as long as I can remember when the mail came, he would get a promise from the Reader's Digest, he would fill it out and send it, and he knew that money was coming. We'd call him, Dad, how are you doing? I'm fine, I'm waiting for my million. Call him a few months later, how are you doing? Well, Ed McMahon, he'll be on my doorstep any day. I'll give you half. He filled out everyone. He knew he was going to win someday. He believed the promise. The world has so much to sell you. I even believe it sometimes, too, when I walked by a, the mall one day and saw this advertisement in the storefront that said, Stress Relief Inside. And I'd been a, a busy work week, six days continuous, 12 hours a day. I thought, this is the place for me. Let me just see what they have to offer. And I went inside where there were lotions and potions and candles and things to smell. And, and you're supposed to spray chamomile and lavender and eucalyptus on your sheets and lay your head down and let the smell just, you know, calm you. I believed it. And so I bought one of those things, and I brought it to my office, the source of all stress in life, right? <laughs> and I inserted it into the receptacle there. I left the office. I thought I would come back and just you'd be surprised by the smell. It would take me away. And when I came back, my office indeed, and the outer office, the entire complex was filled with the smell of just sweaty men. It's the best description I have for you. And that is not stress relief. The world will sell us anything. Jesus says, I don't want you to go to the world. I don't even want you to go to the leaders. I don't want even... Don't even go to the religious officials. Don't even come to us. I want you to come to me because there's something I want to do for you. Jesus says, I want you to learn from me, and I want to exchange this yoke. When he says, take my yoke, the people know what a yoke is. They've just taken the yokes off their animals as they walked away from their workday. They know when the animal wears a yoke, it goes much smoother for the animal. It's easier to carry the load. Jesus says, I'd like to take the yoke of the Roman Empire, and I'd like to give you this one from the kingdom of God. Are you willing? Are you willing to exchange this for that? There is a transformation in process, and I hear the words of the Apostle Paul and the words of Jesus together now. 24 hours in a day will never be enough. You'll never get it all done. You'll never get ahead because you've been duped. You're playing a game that's not my game. There is another reality, a transformation I'd like to put in place. What you've bought into is not the kingdom of God. And everything Jesus said pushed against the Roman Empire. Everything Jesus said pushed against the way the peasants were used to operating. They must have wondered, who is this guy out here in the field? Are we hallucinating? Are these demons? It is very clear from the passage what we do and what God does. There is an invitation and an assignment from Jesus. Come to me and learn from me. And what God does is a work of rest in you.
That's God's part, and this is amazing, the breadth of the gospel of grace. You and I can't even rest our own weary bodies. Did you hear that? Only God can do a work of rest in you and I. That's what the gospel does. We come, we learn. God does this work of resting you and I. And so I'm still in the same place I was 10 minutes ago. Is it possible in my upsized society with two-income household, with aging parents, with retirement well into the 70s as people try and earn their way with more grandparents than ever raising their grandchildren, with more single parents in our society, with retirement accounts and college accounts and paying for your own college bills, when in the world am I going to find time to come to Jesus and to learn from Jesus? And in particular, I challenge those of us who are Adventist Christians to think about our Sabbath time very carefully here. For if we come to the Sabbath hours and present God this exhausted, useless carcass, have we violated part of the heart of Sabbath? When do I have time to come to Jesus? Jesus is asking me to create a margin. There is an author, Dr. Richard Swenson, physician. A few years into his career, he looked around and saw he was in an upsized world going crazy. He bought into the mentality that the world offered, and he realized, I'm no happier now than when I was uneducated and poor. So he changed his career path a little bit, and he specializes. I recommend anything he's written, Richard Swenson, MD. The one book I want to talk quote from right now is called The Overload Syndrome, where he suggests all of us have a load we carry. We must eat. We must take care of our families. We must survive. We must look out for needs, certain needs that we have. There's a load that we carry. And then we reach a limit where we've exhausted our physical and emotional, financial resources. And after that, we sort of move into this redlined area called overload. Any of you know anything about that? The overload, it doesn't mean we stop functioning, we're just doing it on overload. We've stretched everything we have. This Swenson suggests, what if we created an extra space here called a margin? We took the load that we carry and we figure out a way to squeeze it down. We eliminate some things and we insert a margin right there. And in that margin, hmm, might be a space and a place to meet God. It might be a space and a place for spontaneity, for the spirit to move inside of you for a little bit of fun. But when you move into your margin, you haven't exhausted all of your resources. You still have something to invest. It's a margin, he suggests. A space for God. This is when the words of Dallas Willard always remind me that I have a choice. Dallas Willard says, I know of no other answer to busyness than solitude or tragedy. I would choose solitude. Solitude is a margin. 
Is it possible for us to create margins? If we watch Jesus, we see he does this, doesn't he? Mark chapter 6 is a wonderful example. You always hear people say, Jesus retreated to quiet places. Look at how he did it. There are crowds around him, and they've done these great miracles, the disciples and Jesus, and the disciples are so proud of what they've done. And they say to Jesus, look at all these mighty deeds. And the text even says Jesus and the disciples didn't have time to eat. That's how busy they were that day. And Jesus takes the disciples in a boat away. And you can hear them going, but, but Jesus, there's more to do. Look at the people who want you, Jesus. And he takes them away. Do you realize Jesus went to bed every night with people out there who were unfed and unhealed? But somehow he knew if he didn't pull away and create a margin, a space and a place for spontaneity to connect with God, to learn from God, if he didn't do that, he would be functioning in overload all the time. Watch Jesus if you want to know how to create a margin. There aren't many speed words in his vocabulary. If we want to create a margin, we might have to reject the upsized mentality of our world. Remember the words from the Apostle Paul, don't be conformed to this world. Do not think that the incentives this world offers were God-given and God-ordained. You've been duped. We can choose to reject these things. If we want to create a margin, we might have to rethink our notion of time and the difference between sacred time and secular time. Maybe we need to rethink that and recognize all time is sacred. It's not separate, is it? It's all sacred. It's all on the altar. One person has asked, do people need help managing their time because they're too busy, or do they need help managing their time because they've lost a sense of the meaning of time? Which is it for you? All time is sacred. Maybe we need to recover this understanding of time. Maybe we need to be able to distinguish between the two kinds of time in the Bible. The chronological time, like the clock Mark Carr had, where the days tick by and the weeks tick by and history happens. Or the kairos time, the meaningful, event-filled, relational, power-packed time, which is supposed to drive the other. The clock doesn't drive the meaningful time. The meaningful time drives the clock. Maybe we need to recover our understanding of time. Maybe we just need to stand up and say, you know, I have more to say about this than I realized. I could actually own this. I could say, no, I don't have to buy into these patterns of the world. I don't have to upsize everything. I have the power of the Holy Spirit available to me. Did you know you have that power available to you? You could actually put your foot down and say, no. You can sit, sit down with your family and ask the tough questions and say, we refuse to conform to this world which tells us we have to maximize everything. There is another option. And I'd just like to suggest to you rather boldly this morning that if you think you're a victim of the clock, perhaps the gospel hasn't embraced you yet. Because the gospel tells you and I that nothing binds us on this earth. Nothing restrains us. Nothing dictates and makes us conform to this world because we're from another kingdom, aren't we? If you feel like you're a victim of the clock and of the demands of the world... Sit a little longer with the gospel. Sit down as a family. Ask the tough questions. 
Decide what can come out. Decide what you don't need to do. Decide what's really important, what really matters. Clean out some clutter. And if you don't think you need it, just look into the eyes of your children and your grandchildren. Look into the eyes of the children of our church for whom we are all responsible people. The children who sat, do you believe that? If there's nothing else that motivates you this morning, think about the children of our community. Those who sat here on the steps earlier, those who's come and sing for us at children's choir, look into the eyes of them and ask yourself, what are we doing to them? I'm waiting for the reports to come out that tell us how we've ruined these generations because of our lifestyles. You can read the diary of a junior high girl who allowed this to be published in Newsweek a few years ago. She said this is what her schedule looks like during the day. She gets up at 6.30 a.m. She grabs a bite of breakfast on her way out the door, which she eats in the car. She studies hard. She gets good grades. She passed her tests. She takes a little nap in class here and there because she's pretty tired. She does an exhausting amount of extracurricular activities. She gets home late to an empty house where she microwaves a meal and eats by herself. She does several more hours of homework, and this cycle continues week in and week out, over and over, broken up only by more homework on the weekend and a few chores. She says in her article in Newsweek, Why do they do this to us? Everyone tells me I have to get into a good college. Is this what life is really about? Is there no time for play? And in the same journal, you can read the comments of a 17-year-old Californian scholar who achieved a perfect SAT score. Do you remember reading about her? And they asked her, what is the meaning of life? Smart, bright, young girl. And she says, I have no idea. Our young children get up early in the morning. They're busy all day going from activity to activity. Oftentimes we have to leave them with care providers. We see them late at night. If you don't think you need a margin, look in the face of your children and your grandchildren and think again. It was when our daughters were little this happened. They told me one day, well, several days, Mommy, can we just stay at home and do nothing today? Can we have a skip day from church? which we do in our family. And I encourage you to do that too. Not too many skip days. (laughs) A skip day from church, it's a good idea. Could we just plan absolutely nothing today, Mom? Let's go nowhere. We would drive around in the car on a street corner down on Hospitality Lane as we would make a left to go up to our house. There would be a young mother, most most often, most days, standing by the curb there with a sign, needs diapers for her children. So we used to carry around packs of diapers in the trunk of the car. And when we stopped by there, passed by, we'd just quickly stop and give her a package of diapers. One day we went by, and we were in a hurry, and there was no time to stop. We were going to be late to tumbling, and then we had haircuts, need to get home, do the whole bedtime routine. And the girls saw the woman on the corner and said, Oh, Mommy, there's the diaper lady. Let's stop. No, we don't have time today, guys. We've got to keep driving. Just we got to go. No, 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 Mommy. The, she needs diapers. The little voice from the back seat. Girls, we don't have time today. We've got to go. But, but Mom, we'll, we'll be late to tumbling. 
But mom, we don't even have to go to tumbling today. But mom, no girls, next time, next time. And the next time we drove by, the woman was gone. We never saw her again. And I'm reminded of the words of Martin Luther King Jr., who, whose birthday we celebrate this month, when he says to us, we must use our time creatively, forever realizing that the time is always right to do the right thing. Those are words from Jesus. If I want my children to know that and to experience that, where is the margin for me to teach this to them? If you don't think you need a margin in your world, look at your children and ask again. And then for the elderly and the older ones in our community, look at them. You impress me so much. While your pace of life has slowed a little bit, and I confess, when I'm in the grocery store and I'm behind an elderly couple, and you know how the pace is so leisurely, and you just go, oh, hurry up. I walk quick, they walk slow. I come here and I look at our retirement community. I don't know anywhere else where there's such an active retirement community. If you want to learn how to creatively use your time so you can do the right thing, Watch the elderly, the older ones in our community. I am so proud of these two women in our midst, Alma Tucker and Jean Zachary, who are going to leave in a few days to go to the Philippines where, where you guys, they're, they're not just helping, they're the sole presenters of the gospel on this little island in the Philippines. Neither one of them a day over 39. <laughs> Both of them involved in a life of service all their time, but they figure out how their time ha can be transformed and they can creatively do the right thing. Perhaps try this. Think a moment about being a, an accountability partner with someone else in the church. Maybe we're the ones that need to help each other be accountable to create margins. Could that be so? Could it be that we could be asking each other, how are you doing with your margins this week? had an elder of the church ask Pastor Ken and myself a couple of weeks ago, when, when do you take a day off? We worry about you. How are you going to handle that? We're taking that seriously. We've reorganized some meetings at the church, and I was able to write back to this elder and say, let me tell you what I did on my day off last week. I took my daughter here. We went there. We ate here. We had a great day. Thank you for asking. That's an accountability partner. Maybe we need to do that for each other because look around, you're sitting beside very busy believers. And sometimes we think busyness is a synonym for kingdom work, especially in Adventist Christianity. We have such a good work ethic. But maybe we need to help each other here. Let me close by telling you, a few years ago, I was rushing at my fast pace dressed about like this, going into a restaurant for a business lunch, and I was quickly moving to the bathroom to wash my hands, and I got into the bathroom and began to wash my hands and looked over and noticed that there was a, a, a gentleman in my bathroom. <laughs> well, so I began to wash my hands and said, hello. He said, hello. It's never happened to me before. I'm not sure how to make small talk with a guy in the bathroom. <laughs> There's a guy in my bathroom, I thought. But upon a more careful 
analysis. There was a woman in the men's restroom. I said, goodbye. He said, goodbye. Here's what got me. When I scurried out of the restroom, there was a gentleman on the payphone there. He looked like he was on hold. And I said to him, I just went into the men's restroom. He said, yeah, you did. I saw the whole thing. Why didn't you stop me? He said, you know, lady, you looked like you knew where you were going. Now look around you and look around your family because people might look like they know where they're going. They might look like they're managing their load, but what they might need is you to say, are you sure you know where you're going? They might need you or I to say, where's your margin this week? We act like people who don't expect to go home and have God say to us, well done. It was a good day. You did well. Eat. Rest. Spend some time with your family. Phone a friend. Cook a good meal. What a day. There'll be another one tomorrow. Put your calendar on the altar. God will absolutely transform it. I invite you to stand as we pray together today. God, I offer just this line from a Negro spiritual Slow me down, Lord. Slow me down so that your kingdom work can be done on this earth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.